In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Almighty God, blessed Trinity, we thank you so much for bringing us here. We thank you for the most wonderful gift you've ever given us, which is the Holy Mass. We thank you, Lord, that it is not we who have chosen to be here, but you have chosen us to be here to learn the depths of the entire deposit of faith and morals that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We ask that you would cover us all with the protect, your protective, protective precious blood, Mary, that you would wrap your mantle around the children outside. And Lord, we ask um, just that everything we do this week would glorify you. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Okay. Um, okay, great. This is fun. If everyone can mark... Not that we're going to like immediately start at this point, but if everyone can go to page 888 on your missiles, or basically, or I think, sir, you're in the Veronius Press one there. Just go to the, the ordinary of the Mass. So that, that starts with the nomine patris affiliate spiritu santi intru ibolatati dei. Just go to that in your missile, and it's page, sorry, 838. I, I apologize. If you got one from Chris, if you got one from Chris LeDuc, it's 838 in your Angelus Press. It'll be a little bit different in the, um, in the other one there. And uh, I'm not going to exactly go word by word right now. Yes, ma'am. Do you have any extra missiles? Yes. How many do you need back there? Here, I'll just hand you a box. Just two. Just two? Okay. <coughs> yeah, and it's, it's, it's totally fine to have babies in here. Um, yeah, we, we, and kids are welcome in here, too, guys. I, I you know... We can't be a pro-life parish and be, be too upset kids coming to class. So, um, so guys, page 838 is the Mass of the Catechumens. And see, from the very earliest days... Actually, let me rewind. So, um, when I first started learning this Mass, I called it the Trinity Mass. I thought it went to, like, the 16th century, you know? And then I found out it really kind of goes back to, like, the 6th century... It's probably a better term, like if you have the um, book by by Father Jackson, it's uh, he calls it in his book the the right of Saint Gregory the Great. Does anybody know when Saint Gregory the Great lived? Yeah, sixth century. So really, ninety percent of what we're studying is sixth century. So I think a lot of times people kind of make us feel like we're kind of living from like you know sixteen hundred to nineteen fifty. But the more I studied it, the more I found this mass went back to the 6th century. And then recently, there's a book out of uh, Notre Dame Press that shows that the Roman canon, as we're going to study it, was translated from the Greek to the Latin between 350 and 380 AD. And that this mass was being used in Greek by the Christians in Rome, well, at least from 120 years before that, because it took 120 years to translate. It kind of shows you how seriously we should really take translations. So the funny thing is, the traditional Latin Mass in Rome was actually the traditional Greek Mass in Rome, but probably more sober like this than the more um, like musical Byzantine liturgies, which are very beautiful and also go back to the latest 6th century. But they're probably also apostolic Masses. So we have evidence that what we're studying here goes back to the very early church. In fact, the Council of Trent, which is infallible, says this Mass is apostolic in origin, which would actually mean Christ gave this to the apostles. So that's very different from kind of how we're going to take some kind of hits from friends saying this is the 1950s Mass. Maybe we could say it's more the 50s Mass. You know? It goes way, way back. Um, and 
so now not not that and, and see here's the thing the more that you learn in these things kind of the more the nails come out for us traditionalists um, I don't even know if I'm a traditionalist I just mean that we're Catholic but we, we take some hits for going to this mass and so the better thing is to just stay you know just stay peaceful let people see Christ in you um, if you really fall in love with this knowledge wisdom slash information uh, as we go on now the early church had two parts of the mass Mass of the Catechumens and the Mass of the Faithful. And the Mass of the Catechumens was, well, first of all, who, does anybody know what a catechumen is? Exactly, someone who wants to be Catholic. And the church always saw her catechumens as part of the church. But there had to be testing. Sometimes it was two years of basically the primitive version of, primitive version of RCIA. Sometimes, um, I mean, there's I haven't seen this in like books only stories and and I don't know how true it is but there's probably some truth to it that like the you know the early Roman Christians had to figure out who was spies and things like that so the, the first part of the mass the mass of the catechumens only people who were tried and tested who really wanted to be baptized and they had to understand this was like 50-50 chance you were signing up for martyrdom so it's no wonder the church grew at such amazing rate because it only was taking people who were super serious about the faith it's like I don't know if you hear my sermons online but I often quote something I saw on CNN. It's like, I've probably watched CNN three times the past two years. And there was a Chaldean Catholic in San Diego, and he was talking about when ISIS shows up in these towns. This was at the height of ISIS two years ago. And they put knives to the throats of men, women, and children, 95%. Well, ISIS puts a knife to the throat of every man, woman, child. They say, if you renounce, if you renounce Christ and accept Islam, we'll let you live. He said... He's a Chaldean Catholic from Iraq, being satellite from San Diego to Atlanta or D.C., wherever CNN was. 95% of them will take the knife before renouncing Christ. 95% of every child, you know? And then I get, like, talk about food. I got a letter once. Um, it was like a hate mail, not signed, and it said, Why do you tell us to spit our gum out at Mass? We are old and our throats hurt. And it's like, I said, why do you tell us to spit our gum out at Mass? We are old and our throats hurt. That was, an, that was an, a letter I got. And it's like, here, here you have people having their throats cut to be Christian who were 5 and 10 years old, right? So the, the early church grew at a rate of 40% a decade. 40% a decade because they took this stuff so seriously. So after you were tried and tested a bit, you were able to come to the first part of the Mass in the, cat, in, the, in the catacombs called the Mass of the Catechumens. This is what the new Mass calls the Liturgy of the Word. It's the first half of the Mass, basically. Then for those... Now, and here's the thing. Before the Sanctus started, all of those who were catechumens then had to leave Mass. And only those who were baptized, fully-fledged members got to stay for the second half of the Mass, which is called the Mass of the Faithful. Why? Because it's only the faithful who were there. doesn't mean the catechumens weren't faithful people, but faithful as in fully baptized, fully integrated into the early Christian community. So, um, and the neat thing is this has been retained, because if you open the missiles here, you'll see that this first part is called the Mass of the Catechumens, and then after the Sanctus is the Mass of the Faithful. And so this is really the skeleton that we're going to build on for this whole class. And my goal of this class is to look at the historical development of it and the spiritual reality of it. I want to make a cross-section of that 
the historical development of this Mass and the spiritual import of it all. And the neat thing is those kind of get weaved together through history very nicely. Certain parts of the Mass were added. Like the first thing we're going to study here, the prayer at the foot of the altar, I go into the house of the Lord. That's Psalm 42. That was added, that was not in the early church, but the Roman canon was in the early church. So one of the things you have to remember is that all development of liturgy has to be organic, slow, and conservative. That's really important. All development of liturgy has always been, at least if it's a valid development of liturgy, has to be organic, slow, and conservative. So, for example, sometimes people will say, well, this part of the Mass wasn't added till the 16th century. And I often say to them, well, but remember, that was done by a pope or a saint, and that took 100 years to get that added in there. So, for example, the only difference I know of, there might be more, but the only difference I know of between this missile and if you went to an antique store and found one that's 100 years old, like literally from the 19th century, there might be more differences. The only difference I know is that St. Joseph is mentioned in the Roman canon here, and he's not in the one 100 years ago. Do you see how slow a development all this is? So the neat thing about this class is it's going to be a history lesson, too, to, to see how the popes thought, to see how the saints thought, to see how the laity thought. And... And then we're going to look at the spiritual import. So basically, um, I will try to email this to everybody, but I have an Evernote by St. Francis de Sales. You know, I quoted him in the sermon today. And he has a really amazing um, walkthrough of the Mass where he shows every single part of the Mass you should be thinking about one part of Calvary. So, for example, the prayers at the foot of the altar, these are these prayers of longing, uh, as you enter into Calvary. So he says, we should be thinking about Jesus in the garden. So when you see me at the foot of the altar, you should be thinking of Jesus in the garden, right? Um, fast forward to, um, we'll, we'll go to the Mass of the Faithful, since most of Calvary really starts at that point. Anyone have any idea when I take the chalice veil off and put it off to the side? Any idea just from that one thing St. Francis of Sales says, what we should be meditating on at that time? Exactly, very good. Christ being stripped. You see how amazing this Mass is if you actually think through this? Because usually people are just like, what you doing now? Well, what you doing now? You know, like, I don't hear anything. But if you, if you actually, like, if you're thinking of Christ being stripped as you see that happen, you're being, meditation is the launching point to cont- contemplation. Meditation is the launching point to contemplation. So the more you meditate on this, and then, like, so here's another example. When I turn around and said, Ecce Agnus Dei, what do you think of when you hear that? Think of the movie, think of the, movie the Passion of the Christ. When do you actually hear someone say Ecce in that movie? Pilate. Pilate, very good. Remember, he says, Ecce Homo. And that's what Francis de Sales says you should think of, is him before Pilate, when you hear me turn around and say, Ecce Agnus Dei. Isn't that beautiful? Mm-hmm. And so all these different parts, and then the crucifixion is, of course, when I raise the sacrifice. When you see the sacrificial host listed, lifted, as, and you know how solemnly we go up, that's Christ being lifted on the cross. Because you are taken in a time machine to Christ being crucified in this. So at least the first month of this class, what my goal <coughs> to do is to line up the use of this book with Francis de Sales' Meditations. So, you don't have, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about, like, um, getting, 
it, I love it that y'all are taking notes or some of you are taking notes. I wouldn't worry about getting every bit of this because even me at Mass, I my mind wanders too. So I try to remember a few things that I've learned from St. Francis de Sales along those lines. Um, I'll just read you a few of these. Just I'll just pick a few random ones that I think are important. The priest uncovers the chalice. Jesus is stripped of his garments. At the offertory, Jesus is scourged. Me offering the chalice. Now that's not, not, not the sacrifice of the chalice, not when it turns into his blood, but remember when I say, Oferimus tibi domini calicum, this is just like offering our lives on the altar. Um, that is where St. Francis de Sales says we should be thinking of Jesus being crowned with thorns. And he has a little prayer. If you send me an email, uh, you'll get all this. He says, St. Francis de Sales says, Lord Jesus Christ, who did submit through love for me to be crowned with thorns, grant that my heart may be so penetrated with the thorns of repentance in this world that I may deserve to be hereafter crowned with thee in glory. The, p- the priest washes his fingers. Any idea? Think of the movie The Passion of the Christ. Pilate. Pilate again. See what I mean? If you start applying that movie Passion of the Christ to this Mass, your mind will be in Calvary. And this is really why I think God sent us Padre Pio. I don't know how many of you are here for the sermon on Padre Pio, but remember I told about how he always had the stigmata, but he felt the full weight of a crucifixion at Mass. That's why you'll see him like bent over, gritting his teeth at Mass, is because Jesus let him feel all the pain of Calvary in that. I think for a few reasons. One, to conform him to Christ. Two, for the glory. Well, one is for the glory of God. Two, to conform Pio to Christ. Three, for the salvation of souls, especially in the midst of two world wars. And fourth, to show people what the Mass actually cost Christ. And this is why, you know, sometimes you'll talk to people and say, well, I like to think of the resurrection at Mass. And there is a time in that for that. I'm not against that. But I think God sent us Padre Pio to show that we are at Calvary. It's like you're taking a time machine back there. And if you can remember some of these things, like, again, me washing my hands, you think of Pilate. And the movie did a brilliant job because it actually linked Pilate washing his hands to the time of the Last Supper when Jesus washes his hands before the Last Supper, if you remember that, right? So if you're thinking about these things, even if you have kids screaming and everything else, you can be, think of like, I don't know, I read Anne Barnhart. She's, she's very irreverent, but I, I like reading her. And she talked about, you know, going to the Novus Ordo Mass. And she said, anybody who says, well, I can't go to the traditional Mass, so I'm not going to go to the Novus Ordo. She said, remember what Calvary was like. How many people were blaspheming? How many people being crucified had no clothes on at all? How distracting it all was? You know, I thought that that's a really interesting meditation on that so like I, I think that's true that if it's ever hard for you to be at mass whether it's this mass or Novus Ordo just remember if you were John with Mary you would have seen a lot more blasphemy than anything in any mass you know what I mean so just go to mass wherever it happens to be um, so that's a beautiful thing if it's quiet we can contemplate if it's loud we're at Calvary and you know sometimes I joke if the priest gives a really heretical sermon it gives you new meaning to sacrifice at the mass you know? <laughs> so so it's a win-win situation right okay a few more of these the Orate Frates that's when I turn around Orate Frates actually that's where he says is behold the man um, the consecration of the bread and wine becomes the body and blood of Jesus that's Jesus is nailed to the cross um, at the Oh, I was wrong on a couple of these. Consecration of the bread and wine is when we meditate upon Jesus being nailed to the cross. At the elevation of the chalice, in the sacrificial part where the wine becomes a blood, Francis says we should meditate on the blood of Jesus overflowing from his wounds. Um, at the division of the sacred host, when I say, Hey, comixio corpus et sanguinis dominus Jesu Christi, um, Hey, comixio, that's the division of the sacred host, that is Jesus expiring on the cross. He says, the priest puts a particle of the sacred host into the chalice. The soul of Jesus descends into the limbo of hell. Isn't that amazing? 
as I drop that in there, uh, the soul of Jesus descends into the limbo of hell. Um, at the Agnus Day, the conversion of sinners. Actually, I was praying for someone involved in um, uh, Black Mass or Black Arts today at the Agnus Day today, so that works nice. Um, at the communion, um, Jesus is buried. When the priest receives, when he eats Jesus' body and blood, Jesus is buried. Now, other meditations hold it that when I put that sacred host into the precious blood, some people say that's when you should start meditating on the resurrection. And that's great. I like that too because that's when Jesus' blood was back in union with his body, right? Is literally in the, in the crucifixion. He made his own blood go back into his body. And so all the way back to the 6th century... The explanation of why this is a sacrifice is actually the separation of the body and blood. In fact, this was an Eastern saint, St. Gregory Nazianzen says, The priest sunders with unbloody cut the body and blood of the Lord using his voice as a sword. Sunder means to cut. So because there's a double consecration, that constitutes the actual sacrifice that you're attending. Fulton Sheen talks a lot about this because it's in Thomas Aquinas. This goes, and I, I mentioned this in seminary, and the nun who was teaching us, and she's even like seen as pretty conservative, was like, no, no, that's devotional, that's, that's devotional. And it's like, wait a minute, Thomas Aquinas and the church fathers, even the Eastern church fathers talk about this, that's not devotional. That's the best explanation that we have so far of why this is a holy sacrifice is because when I, because there's a double consecration, one of the bread becoming the body and another of the wine becoming the blood, that separation of Jesus' body and blood, it's not exactly a one-to-one correlation of what we can see. There's something mystically happening. But there's a deep connection between the fact that on the altar, Jesus' body is separate from his blood, just as on the cross, his blood was separating from his body. That's what constitutes the sacrifice. Fulton Sheen talks about this. Thomas Aquinas talks about this. St. Gregory Nazianzen. The priest sunders with unbody cut the body and blood of the Lord using his voice as a sword. So that's why we're at a sacrifice. And then again, just to recap, the resurrection is when Jesus' body comes into union with his blood, so that's, that's something you can meditate on there too. Um, just a few more of these. Um, at the, oh, so so uh, the communion of the people, that's where um, Francis de Sales says that people can meditate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So again, there's some leeway on this. His prayer is, Lord Jesus Christ, who didst triumphantly issue from the fast-sealed <laughs> monument, grant that rising from the tomb of my sins... I may walk in newness of life so that when thou shalt appear in glory, I may merit also to appear with thee. So that's a really neat thing. Um, so when you receive Holy Communion, a few reasons that he's giving why you should meditate on the resurrection. One is, we're not receiving only the crucified body of Christ. When we go to Holy Mass, we're receiving the resurrected and crucified body of Christ. This is important. This is why we're not you know, kind of cannibals, as they said in the first few centuries. We are receiving the resurrected flesh of Christ at that moment. Secondly, remember what Paul says, that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. So you get to rise in your flesh, not just your souls. You get to rise in your flesh because you're receiving the resurrected body of Christ. So you receiving Holy Communion and sanctifying grace, this is the pledge of you getting your body back. It's because you're receiving a resurrected body, you get to receive a resurrected body. Isn't that amazing? So that's why when you receive Holy Communion, you should think of Jesus resurrecting from the dead. Okay, then the final blessing, when I say, He says, that's when you meditate on Pentecost, descended the Holy Ghost. St. Francis de Sales, Lord Jesus Christ, who did send the Holy Ghost on thine apostles while engaged in unanimous and persevering prayer, purify my soul, I beseech thee, that the paraclete, finding therein a dwelling well-pleasing to him, may adorn it with his gifts and replenish it with his consolations. Okay.
So even though this, you know, has maybe been misdone by, or kind of like misinterpreted in the past 50 years by people, it is true that the Ite Misa Est, this is, well, this is how Fulton Sheen describes it. The, the translation for Ite Misa Est is kind of debated because Ite just means go. Misa Est means it's been sent or offered. So Fulton Sheen translates it as this. Go for the sacrifice has been sent to God. And so I think Francis de Sales has us meditate on Pentecost there because that is where you go out into the world to make disciples of Christ. Whether it's your families or your families plus other people, we are all called at that moment to go and make disciples. Um, the problem is, I think, that I saw something on Facebook last night, a priest that I know from Denver put up as a picture, a sign at this uh, normal parish that said, at the exit door said, entering mission fields. Yes. And I wrote in as a comment on Facebook, I think it's on the wrong side of the glass. <laughs> Get it? That it's, yeah. when the priest yeah. enters the world, he has all these people to convert since it's like 80% of Catholic women are on the pill and stuff. So it's like, you know, the mission field's in there. But the funny thing is, we who are learning the faith, we traditionalists are the wimpiest about sharing with other people. So it's like kind of ironic that it's the people who like barely know the Catholic faith who are being told to go make disciples where we're ashamed because we kind of often have this in the Latin masses pull up the drawbridge mentality of like let's be insular. And so my goal is like I think we should now I don't think we should start by recruiting people for Latin mass. I mean Jesus said in John 14 if you love me you will keep my commandments. And so this is where you might think I'm more of a neoconservative than a traditionalist but the fact is as I said we're all Catholics and None of this matters if you don't have a relationship with Christ. Because, again, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so this is why this is the best way to mine, M-I-N-E, the Holy Mass, is to have meditation on the Gospels every day. Start with 15 minutes, start with 30 minutes, because all the saints say, St. Teresa of Avila, St. Alphonsus of Liguori, that is the key to uh, having a relationship with Christ and not sinning, is that mental prayer. And if you do mental prayer every day, that will help you mine the riches of this, and explain the love of Christ to others, and explain the Catholic faith to other people. It's a great question, and I'm just going to repeat it for the podcast, not podcast, just the Dropbox. Her question, and actually maybe people in the back didn't hear it, um, her question is, why is her missile from 1955 different from this 1962 missile? My answer is, the translation to English is different, but the Latin's not different. And I think the translation from the English is different is because we've had a history of using antiquated English for that, and that's where, call me not very traditional in this, that's where I think it's better to be updating the translations as long as it's faithful. Because most people don't know the thou and the these. I mean, if we want to get everyone back, my goal is to get everyone back to this Mass. And if we want everyone back to this Mass, we can't pretend like we all walk around saying thou's and these and things like that. So it was even more antiquated in the, in the 1950s. So like even Angela's Press, these books you're still going to notice a very regal, if not antiquated, language. Um, but you, you won't notice any difference in the Roman canon. So I think there's a way to do a dynamic translation without changing the meaning. But it's, it's very, very difficult because usually we do one of two things. We either stay like accurate to the transliteration and it's so antiquated that even traditionalists don't understand it in the English. Or we use a dynamic translation which is so loose that it's using words like fellow. They, even by 1964, that was in the Mass. It was like, uh, who is this fellow? 
I was reading that, and I did the 1964 Mass a couple times last year in Louisiana, which is basically the traditional Latin Mass with the Epistle and the Gospel in English, and I just, I just felt like, oh, I hate calling Jesus a fellow four feet from the Blessed Sacrament. So there's like, how do we get to have like a dynamic translation while remaining faithful? In the Bible, I think the NIV, even though it's Protestant, does a very good job of that because it believes in the supernatural, unlike the NAB. The NAB, I do not like the NAB translation. And if you look at the notes in the NAB, it's just repeatedly dumbing down the supernatural and the miracles. I mean, I just cannot stand. I would rather have the Protestant NIV that actually believes in miracles than the Catholic NAB that came from the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops that basically wheedles away every miracle, right? I mean, if you look in the notes, don't read the notes. It'll make you a heretic. It's just, it's horrible. So, I think these are pretty up to date. Yes, Dana? You mentioned uh, those two Bibles. Um, LJ, I wasn't aware of uh, uh, the Dewey Rhymes Bible. Dewey Rhymes, yeah. The Dewey Rhymes, it's a good Bible, but again, your kids won't understand it, and I doubt you will either. And so, it's, a, it's the closest to the Latin, and the Latin, so basically, when St. Jerome translated the, the Greek to the Latin, it, it worked the transliteration worked as a translation. Let me tell, define those two terms. Transliteration means a word-for-word translation. Translation means it's brought into the entire movement of thought of the people it's being translated to. Well, when St. Jerome translated the, the Old Testament Hebrew to the Latin and the Greek to the Latin in the 4th century, especially the Greek because it's a declined language, meaning there's um, cases for the nouns, worked really, really well, even for vulgar or common Latin. The Dewey Rhymes, the problem with it is it totally takes that same attitude 1,500 years later and directly translates it. So, like, remember my sermon last week? It says, the Pharisees say to Jesus, thou carest for no man. Well, does this mean Jesus doesn't care about anybody? No, that made sense in the Greek and the Latin. And that's where the ESV, the English Standard Version or the RSCVE, whether they sell there, which is the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition, I think gets it better because it says, you care for no man's opinion. That includes a little bit of the dynamic translation, meaning it, it, it allows for the translation of, of idiomatic phraseology, meaning it gets to the heart of it. The problem is the NAB went too far from that. That's why when most people look at how the NAB went too far into a dynamic translation, which really projected a non-supernatural view onto divine revelation... <coughs> most traditionalists revert back to the Dewey Rhymes. Dewey Rhymes. So I bless you guys using the Dewey Rhymes Bible. It's a good Bible. It's what most Latin Mass people at Fraternity St. Peter and SSPX parishes coast to coast are going to use. Um, I personally, well, they actually taught us Greek in seminary. So when I study the Gospels, I'm actually reading the Greek. But when I'm, when I'm reading St. Paul, my Greek's not good enough. Paul is like the Shakespeare Greek. I mean, he has these... He has these, I mean, it's unbelievable. I can read John's Gospel with almost no need for a dictionary in Greek. And Paul, I cannot understand usually a single sentence without a dictionary. I mean, the difference is enormous between John and Paul's Greek, right? And so when I read Paul, I personally like the Revised Standard Version Catholic Edition done by Ignatius Press that they sell in there. Um, But I don't have a problem with the Dewey Rhymes. That's the book that all the bishops... Um, before Vatican II wanted all Catholics to buy. So it's it's a great one. Um, does that make sense, the difference between the two? In other words, you, yeah, use both. I mean, that's sometimes that's really fun if you have the time to really study it because sometimes you can really get what the Greek and the Latin was. If you have both and you can open it, it's it's really, really neat. 
Um, so they're both they're both trustable translations, I would say. You know? Yes, sir. Great question. Yes. So his question was, are you going to include the Hebraic parts of the sacrifice? Basically, I changed it a little bit. Um, yes, and that is actually something. Again, I'm sorry to just categorize all these Catholics nowadays. Everything's so fractured. That's something the neoconservatives get better than the traditionalists because people like Brant Petrie and Scott Hahn, they really study this. But I want to shake their shoulders and be like, what you're teaching doesn't work with the new math. I mean, all of this, it works at the intellectual level, but at the visual, because obviously we all believe the Novus Ordo is a valid mass. It's truly a sacrifice of Calvary. But what I love about the Latin mass is it captures, like, even how it would have looked for a high priest at a sacrifice. Like, you know how you never saw me sit down today? I heard someone make a really basic point. When in the Old Testament, when a priest is at a bloody sacrifice, do you see him sit down for a break? He doesn't. He stands the whole time. The one exception you'll see in a month is the sung mass because the glory in the creed is so long. I think in the Middle Ages they added that for the priest to sit down for a, a glory of creed. But yes, I mean, there's so much. In fact, if you, and, and you know who really does, who's a traditionalist who really gets that very well is Father Jackson. He was ordained in a normal diocese in Kansas and he's been with the Fraternity of St. Peter. He's the one who taught me the old mass. And he, if you get his book, and we're going to add things, I mean, every little thing, like give you an example. You know at the Hank tour when I place my hands over what's going to be the sacrifice, over the offertory, the bread and the wine? You know what he says you're supposed to be thinking of as a priest then? The goat led into the desert because the high priest laid his hands on the goat, charging that goat with all the sins of the community as it was going to go out and die for everybody. And I remember in the Fraternity St. Peter Parish in, in Littleton, what Father Jackson said to me, he goes, I hate to do it to our Lord. I hate it. It hurts my heart, but I know I have to. So he's putting all the sins of the world, all the sins of his parish, all the sins of Denver on that, charging that, which sacrifice is going to be lifted up to God. Scapegoat. The scapegoat. Christ is the scapegoat for all of our sins and stupidities. You know? So I'll think of like what I know is going on in the world. Um, I really remember almost nothing from confessions, but I usually have a general idea of what I'm... But I'll even try to direct all the general things, even though I don't remember specifics, from confessions onto there, from things I know going on in the world, from things people ask me to pray for, people I know who are in sin, I'm making Jesus this scapegoat that's going to be led to the desert of death. You know, So yeah, it's really neat. All these things tie into Jewish sacrifice on these things. Um, I mentioned about a month ago the, uh, the fact that Jesus, when he showed up to the temple... Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, 200,000 uh, lambs were slaughtered every year. And if you remember this, talk about how the pomegranate branch was put down the, the spine of a lamb that would be slaughtered at Passover and then through the two hooves. So Jesus showing up as a 12-year-old walking in the temple would have seen 200,000 bloodied lambs in cruciform on a cross as he entered, knowing he would replace those innocent lambs. That amazing? Imagine a twelve-year-old knowing he's going to look like that one day—a bloodied, slaughtered animal. And so, um, and, and notice that forty years after Jesus dies, there's no more sacrifice. There still isn't. I mean, he's the one who replaced that, right? Um, another thing that Brant Petrie points out is the temple. The, the river Gihon ran through the temple, and there's actually something in Chronicles that really suggests the Garden of Eden was not in Iraq, but modern-day Jerusalem. That's what 
Brant Petrie says um, Jerusalem is. So Gihon is apparently one of the four original rivers mentioned in um, Genesis chapter 1 or 2, the creation of the world. Well, that river runs under Solomon's temple, and that river above it would have had a hole, at least one hole about this big, so that every family would bring their lamb to the high priest. I can't remember if it was the dad of the family or the priest who would cut the throat. I think the priest cut the throat. All the blood would go down. Now, normally in the year, the temple, imagine the temple here, the water coming into the temple, or under the temple, rather, for Gihon would be water, and then coming out water. But during Passover, because 200,000 lambs would be slaughtered, what you see is water and blood coming out of the side of the temple. Isn't that amazing? Water and blood. And what did Jesus say would be the one temple? His body, and then our bodies. Right, so his temp. Remember how he said, "Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up again." Water and blood came out of the temple, and he's in the lamb cruciform as that happens. Right, so I mean, it's like Tolkien said, no human person could have written the Bible, and I would add that to the Catholic faith, to the Catechism, and to this liturgy. Is it's the connections are too profound to be anything but miraculous. Everything is written by God. You know, and whether you like the traditional Latin Mass more or the Novus Ordo, this is a closed system. It's like I should say, it's an airtight system. That's what I love about traditional doctrine and liturgy is everything works together as a totally airtight system. It doesn't mean we should be insular about our faith, but it means everything works together in the most amazing ways. You know, so um, so we'll talk about Passover. We'll talk about like you know. Like, if you read Blessed Catherine Emmerich, it was when Jesus was being whipped, when he was scourged, you could hear all the bleeding of the lambs right next to her. Yeah. I have a question on the, then take us off the topic, but when you talked about meditating each day, so I would, yeah. used to meditate on the Novus Ordo Gospel of the day. What yeah. I found, when I, now that I'm using the Latin... Mm-hmm. Missile is there's a lot of free days or multiple days where you're meditating on the same gospel That's or right. it goes to a, a saint or whatever that you could see the same gospel a lot. I find it more difficult to meditate mm-hmm. on the same gospel. Do mm-hmm. you use the gospel of the day or do you kind of veer off into uh, going through one gospel when you're doing your daily meditation? So Dr. Peter Kabanowski, am I saying his name right? Somewhere. He's the one who teaches at Wyoming Catholic he likes the old method because he compares it to a giant feast of Lexio Divina where it's better to just eat tiny morsels that are super rich. So when I'm doing Lexio, sometimes I'm just trying to catch up in the old divine office and get on my feet because that's like three hours a day. But my goal in Lexio or mental prayer um, is to be basically an Excel sheet of just every gospel to do like half of a chapter of... Um, say Mark 1 the first day, the second half of Mark 1 the second day, the first half of Mark 2 on the third day, the second half of Mark 2 on the fourth day. Like, Because even though people say the Novus Ordo um, lectionary covers the whole Bible, it doesn't. I mean, it does cover more than the traditional Latin Mass, but it's my guess is the traditional Latin Mass probably covers 5% of the Bible and the Novus Ordo covers 30%. But if you talk to most people, they act like it's 99%, but it's, it's not, right? So... Um, it's, uh, but I would say 80% of the day, I mean, I know, I hear what you're saying, because like, 
I think a week or two ago, we had a lot of feral days, but like this upcoming week, I don't think we're going to hear the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost again. We have like St. Gregory the Wonder Worker. Tomorrow in the United States, we can celebrate St. Francis Xavier, even in the old right. Uh, sorry, St. Francis Xavier Cabrini is tomorrow, even in the old right. So like if you wanted to meditate through that, it's going to be different every day. And what we're going to see is the saints usually have like the same readings based on what they are, like either virgin or confessor or papal martyr or pope not martyr, like those types of things, right? So I think it's better to do either just meditating on the Passion or do a half a chapter of the Gospel every day. Start at 15 minutes, crank it up to 30. That's your best way to prepare for this is to do 15 to 30 minutes of every Gospel. Because in all honesty, I notice most traditionalists, they don't know the Bible at all. And I, and, and even traditional, I remember even talking to traditional priests, I was like, these guys, this is one way that neocon priests are way ahead of traditional priests. Is traditional priests have no, under, like not no, but very, they know the they know Thomas Aquinas' Summa forwards and backwards, they know the liturgy and the doctrine forwards and backwards, they know their moral theology, but I'm surprised how little they know of salvation history. And so that's why part of my goal is to look at salvation history as we do this. Um, so... I would suggest just picking a gospel and doing half of a gospel chapter a day. Half a chapter a day. Unless you're in John, do a quarter because they're such long chapters. Great question, though. The other thing you can do, too, is if once I send you St. Francis de Sales thing, is you can just meditate. You could even meditate on that and just think of the Mass. And hopefully, like I said, we'll get to get to the point of daily Masses. Okay, uh, any other questions? Yes, Damon. On the what? <clears throat> on the meditations, uh, like yeah. I have a, a devotional book to Mary. Mm-hmm. Should you not substitute that, or, or is that a, a an equivalent? Great question. So, as long as we're talking so much about Saint Francis de Sales today, here's what he says in Introduction to the Devout Life. Saint Francis de Sales says, for the lay person, he should always prioritize mental prayer ahead of the liturgy of the hours of the divine office. And I think he would include prioritizing meditation ahead of devotionals too, except the rosary. And so, let me put it this way. Teresa of Avila says, and remember, they did not talk in such absolute terms in the 16th century unless they were absolutely sure. She said, the devil knows he has lost the soul that commits itself to 30 minutes of mental prayer a day. Pretty amazing, isn't it? The devil knows he has lost himself to the soul that commits itself to 30 minutes of mental prayer a day. So I think the most important thing in the life of anybody is that 15 to 30 minutes of meditation on the Gospels. Um, St. Alphonsus Liguori, who always puts everything in terms of hell and terrifying you, says you can't avoid mortal sin without 30 minutes of of meditation a day. Ever, you guys ever heard the beans and rice analogy? If you have like two three-fourths cups of beans and rice and you want to put like put them all in one and a half cups, if you put all the rice in first and then pour the beans, it overflows. But if you put the beans in first and then the rice, it actually fits because all the rice falls in between the beans, right? So I would say the beans is the harder parts of the spiritual life like mental prayer because it's honestly very hard. If you read Don Chartard's uh, Soul of the Apostle, he says this is harder than manual labor to keep your mind like focused on that. I think it's better to do your 15 to 20 minutes or 30 minutes, however long. Start at 15 if you can't get 30. Get up early. This would be the first thing of the day. Do your meditation 15 to 30 minutes a day on the Gospels. And then, as you have time, it's easier to sprinkle in 
devotions or or decades of the rosary as you go through the day, right? So, because here's the thing. Let's say you do put your mind to say, I'm going to meditate on the Gospels 30 minutes in the morning, no matter what, even if I have to get up at 4 a.m. before my kids are up. It's a lot easier to do a decade when you drive to Walgreens, a decade of the rosary when you're in the shower, a decade of the rosary when you're when you're walking. I use a five-point tally system on my arm just so I know where my last one is. So my goal is 15 decades a day, but usually I'm not able to do it all at once. So if I'm driving and I get a phone call, I look down, oh, numbers, I'll look down one, two, three, under, actually I have a tattoo for all these. And so I don't know what you guys think about tattoos, but I have all those written. And then I do a five-point tally and all the divine office, you know, Matins, Lauds, Prime. So it's a little tiny checklist that I just erase. Sorry to scandalize kids with a tattoo, but I, it's got all the, so it's like the joyful mystery. I'll look down and I'll have like the five-point tally system, five to the joyful and then sorrowful, it'll say two. Then let's say I'm talking to someone at the abortion clinic after, and I don't remember. In the past, I'd be like, oh, I don't know where I was, so i just give up. So then I look down and I'm like, oh, two are checked. Third means I'm on the crown of thorns. So it's a lot easier to fill in as you go through the day the little things, but the launching point, I think, should be the meditation time, uh, because of just what all the saints say. And this is this is the thing is, this is why Jesus said, "If you love me, you will keep my commandments." Because you can study all the doctrine and not have a relationship with Christ. And even though a lot of traditionalists shy away from that term because it looks Protestant, if you read Francis de Sales, if you read Teresa of Avila, that's really everything they're talking about is having a relationship with Christ. In fact. You know why St. Ignatius of Loyola got taken to the Inquisition nine times? Some of it was because they thought it looked Protestant, because he was doing these um, spiritual exercises with people, and all of his, you picture yourself in the boat, getting out of the boat, reaching for Jesus as you fall. What is your conversation with Jesus like? And this shocked them so much that some of it was just jealousy, and they hated him because he was doing good things. But it was under the pretext that he sounded Protestant for really leading lay people to this, because there was a lot of hesitation, like, well, if we lead lay people to mental prayer, what if they are tricked by the devil? Should they still be doing it? And amazingly, the Inquisition ended up coming down on the side of Ignatius instead of his enemies, saying, no, he can do it. And I think something like 100,000 people by the end of the 16th century had taken his spiritual exercises um, and really began a relationship with Christ. So basically what I'm trying to say to you is you can have a relationship with Christ and even have a mystical state of discursive mental prayer and learn your doctrine at the same time. These are not opposed as people might have you think. So it's very possible to do both. And I know some traditionalists are afraid of mental prayer because they're afraid of getting tricked by the devil, but this is why I'm quoting you doctors of the church to know, um, you know, look, you're all swimming upstream in a culture that is totally pro-death. You're not going to get tricked into speaking heresy. You all know the faith too well. So go for meditation. You'll be fine. And again, meditation is the launching point to contemplation. Does that make sense? You do the meditation, and then you can add. I would add devotionals later in the day, rosary later in the day. I mean, personally, I was going to daily mass in college, but still falling into sin. When I came back to Denver and learned the ways of mental prayer, I had no more taste for mortal sin at all. And then I started going to daily mass again. So, I mean, I would even go so far as to say daily mass does not lead to mental prayer. Mental prayer leads to daily mass. Even though objectively the Mass is the higher prayer, like if we did have the traditional Mass every day here and we can we pray that the, our, that the bishop lets me, even if we had that, I would say that subjectively 30 minutes of mental prayer is more important than going to daily Mass, even though Mass is objectively higher, if that makes sense. I think I could support that with a lot of saints too. 
Okay. Well, great. I think before, I, there's no need to jump into like the section, but basically just to give you a little preview of what we're going to be doing is we're going to go through um, the ordinary of the Mass, how that ties into Francis de Sales, and then how to find the propers that fit into the ordinary of the Mass. Propers means proper to the Mass, meaning its own. So if you looked in like a direct translation of the word proper, it means own. Well, what does own mean? It means it belongs only to that day. It, the, that day owns it, in other words. That day owns these propers, and proper means its own. And those are the things that change every day for the most part. Occasionally, like if there's no saint on a Tuesday, it'll take the propers from the Sunday prior to that. But what I'm going to teach you is how, it's almost like a Lego set. Like imagine one Lego set that's always the same every Mass, and then you can add on new parts. The parts you add on to the central Lego set, that's the propers. The Lego set is the ordinary of the Mass and the Roman canon. So maybe another way to put it would be like, the skeleton is the ordinary in the Roman canon, and then the flesh that's added that makes every day look as different as every person is the propers. But the skeleton's always the same. If that makes sense. Great, any questions? I have a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious about the ribbons. Yes. Should one be on this particular... Yes, I think you should have one ribbon on the ordinary because you're. Kind of you're one color, or is there certain colors for certain? Things? I'm OCD, so I have it all worked out, and I don't want to project my OCD <laughs> onto everybody else. But I'm happy to share. Oh yeah, share I your OCD, Father. Oh, I do. I mean, the red is always the saint for me because it's usually the martyr. The the green because it's the ferial day. I usually try to keep it like the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. Black I keep in the back for. Uh, a mass of the dead, especially in November. So most of it makes sense. I mean, the new calendar and the old calendar are more or less the same as far as like what the priest wears. So it's a lot of my ribbon decision kind of comes down to just what we know from the old and the new calendar. Um, but basically, I would definitely keep one ribbon there. And then as we get into like daily mass, like the neat thing is about a Sunday mass, you only really need one more ribbon. And that'll be like the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost. Like, you'll only need one more ribbon. Um, but then if you do, like, yesterday's Mass, what did I do? St. Martin de Porras. It was so annoying because right now I can only offer Mass in the little chapel, so I use one of these. And it has all these references. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. So I'm flipping back and forth to about eight different pages as I'm going through this. Why didn't I teach you guys all before you go? Let's find if we can... Do you remember... Does anybody remember what I said Sunday's going to be? I know that's really weird. Most of this, most of this isn't going to be that complex, but basically, it's actually kind of brilliant. If you have after Epiphany is two sixty. Two sixty, great. That's going to take me a while. Ever go to page two sixty? So basically, why is this? It's it's actually pretty brilliant that if Lent started early and you didn't get to your Sundays after Pentecost, the church just filled them in at the end of that same year. Because remember, in two weeks we start a new year in the church. We have to get out of the mindset of. The New Year's is January 1st. We start a New Year as Catholics in two weeks. So at the end of the year, which is where we are, it's kind of funny, it's 78 degrees out, we're at the end of the year. It's, they pick up what was not done because Lent started too early in 2017. I use two, not, you know, as an absolute, but just to help you understand poetically. Because Lent started, we didn't finish the sixth Sunday after Epiphany, so they put that in penultimately, meaning second to last. So, the 24th Sunday after Pentecost is always the last Sunday of the year. They never change that. But then they start filling in backwards from 
sixth Sunday, and then today, if, if Lent had started even earlier, today would have been the fifth Sunday after Epiphany. They just want us to get in all the readings all, all year. So, um, the Collect is the opening prayer, so that's when I remember after the, the Curia and the Gloria, I come over and you see me bow to the tabernacle, and I say, O Remus, and then I'll say, Presta quaesimus omnipotens Deus, and that's where you can follow along. Grant, we beseech the Almighty God that Thinking everything over in our minds, we may accomplish both in words and works that which is pleasing in thy sight. And then I say, Perdominium, and I bow, bow, Perdominium nostrum gazum, Christum filium tuum, qui tecum vivit erat, unitatis spiritus, sandi deis, perdominia secula, seculum. Then I stay right there and I grasp the book like this, I grasp the missile like that, and you'll hear me say, Lexio Pistoli Beati Pauli Apostoli ad Thessalonicae, or Thessalonicae, or Chase, I can't remember. And I'll say fratres, and as soon as you hear fratres, you can start following along. Brethren, we give thanks to God for you always, da-da-da-da-da. Then the boy will take the um, missile to the left side, you'll hear, and if you want to follow along in my prayers, like what I'm going to what I'm going to be praying um, right between those two, you'll, you can't see, you'll get, you'll get better at this, is like, when you see me bow down, I'm going to say at the bottom of 854, um, or sorry, top of 852, the boy's bringing this missile to the left, and if you have time, like, you'll get better at this, and all this, it's neat, because you don't have to be perfect at this, you'll just get faster at it. You'll see me end the epistle, everyone will say Deo Gratias, and even though it goes right from epistle to gospel, you'll know eventually, oh, I come back to the ordinary, because there's a couple prayers. And then, if you look at 852, when you see me bow down, and these prayers go, oh, they are so amazing. I mean, look at, listen to what I'm actually praying to God. Cleanse my heart and my lips, O God Almighty. This is at the top of 853. This is this is to get me ready to say the gospel. And people say that the Catholic Church before Vatican II didn't believe much in the gospel. <laughs> cleanse my heart and my lips, O God Almighty, who didst cleanse the lips of the prophet Isaiah with a burning coal, and vouchsafe through thy gracious mercy so to purify me that I may worthily proclaim thy holy gospel. So when I do that, I'm literally picturing an angel putting a really burning coal on my lips, asking at least for the merits of that prayer to be equal to burn away any sins of speech that I've committed in the past 24 hours. So I'd really try to take that seriously. But the neat thing about the Latin Mass is you're to pray that and join your own prayers there too to be saying, see, it's not a, it's not a clericalistic Mass. You're joining your prayers to me and you should picture an angel putting a super hot coal on your lips to burn away any sins of speech that you've said the past 24 hours or seven days if you're going to uh, only Sunday Mass. Um, and, then, and then I pray um, the Lord, and this is says thy heart because I'll actually give that to a deacon at the, at the sung mass and some of these are defaulted to the sung mass or the rather the solemn high mass when there's more than one person but I won't say the Lord be in thy heart I'll say the Lord be in my heart and on my lips that I may worthily and in a becoming manner announce his holy gospel that, that prayer they kept in the new mass okay then I'm over there then I say Dominus Vobiscum et Spiritutuo Sequentia Sancti Evangelii Segunum who is it Mateum and I will always aim my thumb to sign the name of Jesus in Latin right there. So you'll see my thumb go down on Jesus. And then you all say, Gloria Tibi Domine. And then I say, Inilo Tempere Dixit Jesus. And we always we always bow our head at the name of Jesus and Mary. Now, some people overdo it so everybody sees them. But it's just enough to lightly put your head down. When you hear the name of Jesus or Mary in Latin, and because there's declensions of cases... Jesus can be either Jesus or Jesu. But if you hear me say Jesus or Jesu or Mariam, you should lightly bow your head in adoration to Jesus and in honoring of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Okay, then we finish the Gospel. I say, Laus Tibi Christi. I come down, give announcements, do the readings again in English, give my sermon, come back up, then we do the Creed. Okay, so then, see how it says Creed? That's your sign. 
you want to have one ribbon. Let's see here. You want to get a ribbon probably ready at the next page for the next the secret pair. So 262, you'll have a ribbon. And then at the creed, if you want to follow along in the creed, you're at, anyone have that page? Creed is 857. 856, 857. 856 for the Latin, 857 for the creed um, in English. So you'll follow along uh, in there. Now, my personal suggestion is I tell people for the mass of the catechumens I should follow along in the book, but for the mass of the faithful, you should just pretend like you're at Calvary. Most people I've said that to, they don't really like that advice. They, they like to stick with this, and that's fine. I'm not going to be turning around to see what anybody's doing, so you're fine doing either one. We'll finish. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you.